This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. You know, it, it comes back to cops and robbers and, uh, you know, the chase. You know, what drives people to a lot of things and to obsessive thinking is grudges. This could be a huge grudge that Cinquanta had for, for many, many years on his mind. Supposedly, his wife had no clue that he was an escapee, an ex-con, that he shot a policeman. She was totally surprised. You've got cops and robbers here. You've got a bad guy and a cop uh, in a classic chase, but there is so much more to this story. In August of 2020, Ramon Montoya is living in the city of Española, New Mexico. It's situated in the rural county of Rio Arriba, just north of Santa Fe, and hundreds of miles from where he started running all those years ago. But he's not running anymore. Now in his late 70s, Montoya has been living here, hiding here, for the past four decades. His hair has turned snow white, and a relatively recent mugshot shows him with a trimmed goatee, not the huge dark brown mustache he sported back in the 70s. He's had to start over, craft an entirely new life to keep his past at bay, a past that his friends, his neighbors, and even his own wife don't know about, one that likely feels distant save for a few permanent reminders, a scar near his left eye, and several tattoos, a cross on his left arm, a woman's face on his right, a rose on his chest, and an image of the Virgin Mary on his back. But that past is about to catch up to him. Investigative reporter Jeremy Hohola has covered this story for Nine News in Denver. Yeah, I first heard about it. I was I was online and I saw the story come up on my feed and somebody tagged me uh, in, in this story that came out of a newspaper in New Mexico. And I, I read through it and I was like, whoa, this story is crazy. This is nuts. It's a story that begins in Denver in the fall of 1971. When a rookie cop, Daryl Cinquanta, pulled over an escaped prisoner named Lawrence Pusateri. This guy was on the run. He was an escaped convict out of California. Cinquanta, the police officer, had no way of knowing this at the time, of course. He thought this was going to be a routine stop. He would later tell the Albuquerque Journal that things went south when he asked Pusateri to step out of the vehicle and saw him reaching toward his pocket. He approached Lawrence Pusateri and... I believe Daryl admits to punching the guy in the face or, or you know, striking him somehow. Um, and I don't know what precipitated the approach, but then that's when Pusateri pulled out the gun and shot him in the stomach. Cinquanta, who would survive the shooting, recently spoke to Jeremy Hohola at Nine News about what happened that day in 1971. So you, uh, you get shot in Denver as an officer. And where, where was it in Denver when you got shot? 4,400 block Mariposa Way. And then how long were you in the hospital for when you got shot? Weeks. I don't remember. It was a long time. While Cinquanta was in the hospital recovering from the gunshot wound, the man who shot him was on the run. Larry Pusateri fled to Mexico, where he soon found himself on the wrong side of the law, once again facing drug trafficking charges. He escaped to Mexico, and uh, Daryl Cinquanta tells me while he was in Mexico... He got involved with some bad people down there and then actually felt the heat too much down there and then decided to turn himself in. And that's when he uh, 
was uh, brought to a U.S. consulate, and then he was transferred back into Colorado. Now back in Colorado, Pusateri faced charges for shooting Daryl Cinquanto. He was ultimately convicted uh, for shooting uh, Daryl Cinquanto in the stomach, and then uh, that's when uh, you know the story kind of started to take a different path from him being incarcerated to him, you know, managing to escape again. Uh, from uh, custody here in Colorado. That's right. Pusateri, who had already escaped incarceration in California and evaded Denver police for a while down in Mexico, escaped again. When you live the lifestyle as a criminal, you you think differently. And I remember I've interviewed some of these guys in the past who've spent a long time in prison for various crimes. And what what the common element that I've always been told by these guys is that they always look for opportunity. Like they have this mentality about them where they can see opportunity where other people don't. And, you know, that opportunity can be taken advantage of a victim, of a business, or uh, if you're a, a prisoner, uh, you know, looking at an opportunity to escape. For Larry Pusateri, that opportunity had arrived in 1974. He was, from what I understand, and I don't know the specific details because, you know, it's so long ago, uh, he was on his way to a hospital uh, here in Colorado in Pueblo County, and that's uh, he was there. He was on his way. I mean, he was already convicted for shooting the officer in the stomach, and he was on his way to the hospital. And uh, during uh, the trip to the hospital, or when they got to the hospital, that's when uh, he was able to escape from the hospital. An FBI wanted flyer from the 70s alleges that Pusateri, using a 38 caliber handgun, held a prison guard hostage during his escape from custody. Flyer also notes that he should be considered armed, dangerous, and an escape risk. Unlike the first time he escaped, Pusateri stayed off the radar this time around. Years, decades went by without any sightings, let alone an arrest. And I would imagine Pusateri's mindset after, you know, 10, 15 years, he was probably thinking, you know, I'm scot-free. You know, they're, they're not going to find me. They have no idea where I am. Meanwhile, Daryl Cinquanta had become heavily invested, obsessed with tracking his shooter down. When I interviewed him, he told me that he spent his life trying to find this man. And he said he would call family, he would call friends constantly, asking them if they knew where uh, this man was. Uh, and he would just, con he was, uh, he, I mean, it's clear to, I mean, I think it's fair to say that he was obsessed with this. I did take it uh, kind of like a hobby. And every now and then I would chip away at it and get make some phone calls. I went and knocked on the rel rel relatives' doors of the people that were in the car. I mean, you have no idea of the rocks that I turned over just to rattle their cage, just to let people know that I was looking for them. You know, what drives people to a lot of things and to obsessive thinking is grudges. This could be a huge grudge that Cinquanta had for, for many, many years on his mind. Whatever was driving him, Cinquanta refused to let this case go. Picked at it and picked at it, knocking on doors and making calls, pursuing leads and hitting dead ends. Even when his career as a police officer came to an end, he wasn't ready to give up on finding the man who shot him. He retired from the Denver Police Department in the 1990s, and then he started his own investigative, uh, private investigative firm. And he did that, but I think this has always become a thing for him to do, almost like a sense of purpose. 
Obviously, you know, when he was shot in the stomach, it was probably a traumatic experience for him. And then he probably became upset when Pusateri was able to escape from custody. And so maybe that was a, uh, you know, something was going on in Cinquanta's mind where he just was like, you know what, I'm upset. I'm going to I'm going to spend my time uh, chasing this guy. And that's what he did for years. Uh, and he would just, you know, nip at this case all the time. He told me then eventually, you know, he made all of these calls and then out of the blue someone. And I don't know who that person is, but he said he got a call out of the blue explaining that, you know, hey, I know where where uh, Larry Pusateri is. He's living under this name. This is where he's at. Uh, and, you know, if you want to find him, he's yours. That call came in June of 2020, 46 years after Pusateri escaped and 49 years after Cinquanta was shot. I had been contacting people for years by phone, by knocking on their doors, and uh, all this persistence paid off. And on June 24th, I get a phone call from an individual, and this person says, I thought about it, and I'm going to tell you where the guy is that shot you. To Cinquanta, who had spent nearly half a century trying to track his shooter down, the call seemed too good to be true. And of course, I was skeptical. I mean, you know, 46 years later, now the clear blue, I get a phone call. The caller gave Cinquanta a name and an address in New Mexico. The name Ramon Montoya meant nothing to him at the time. But I got everything I could from this guy, and then I uh, uh, started verifying, corroborated. And during that time, I found an auto accident that this uh, Ramon Montoya got into in 2011. So I pulled that and uh, and I got his mugshot. When Cinquanta looked at the mugshot of Ramon Montoya, staring back at him was the man who shot him 49 years prior, Larry Pusateri. And I was convinced it was him. I mean, by head shape and stuff, but boy, this guy really had changed. When you look at the old black and white wanted posters uh, back in the 1970s of Pusateri, he looks like this tough prisoner. I mean, he's got tattoos. Uh, he looks well built. Looks like he's worked out a lot in prison. Uh, you know, looks like he's fit, uh, standing up straight. And then when I obtained the mugshot from um, from Daryl, he you can kind of tell it's the same guy. But you could see how time has really worn this guy down. I mean, it's been 40 years. You know, he has white hair, you know, has gained a lot of weight. Uh, and you can you can kind of see a resemblance uh, even with the mustache uh, that he has. Um, but, you know, you could, I mean, you could tell it's, it's, it's kind of the same person. But, you know, this guy has really transformed over the, you know, the last four decades. After vetting all this information on his own, Cinquanta decided to bring it to local law enforcement in Española, New Mexico, where a source had told him this Ramon Montoya was living. When Daryl got, got this guy's alias and ran his background and found that drunk driving case, uh, that's when the, uh, the uh, Española Police Department, the FBI, got involved. And it was, of course, taken pretty seriously by those two agencies. I got it all together and I called uh, Abraham Baca. He was a lieutenant with uh, Espanola uh, Police Department in New Mexico, and he agreed to help me. He brought the FBI in, and uh, we worked this case, and uh, they were able to verify that my information was correct, and they uh, surrounded it with a SWAT unit, and they uh, uh, went in and got him. 
And that's when they went in and sent the SWAT team around him. That's all I know is that they went to his house, sent the SWAT team and took him into custody. I don't know how it played out. Um, I'm not sure if it was in the morning or in the afternoon. I'm assuming it was in the morning. Typically when a SWAT team goes into a place like this, they arrest a fugitive. They like to go early in the morning uh, when people are asleep and they're caught off guard, uh, you know, to, to, to decrease the level of any sort of altercation that may happen. After evading law enforcement for 46 years, on August 5th, 2020, Lawrence Pusateri, now 77 years old, was finally arrested. He tried to tell authorities they had the wrong guy, but his tattoos told a different story. And, and Daryl told me when they went in to go arrest him, uh, they were able to confirm that Pusateri was living a lie, that his uh, t- tattoos matched up. That's how they were uh, able to make the connection that the, two, that the tattoos matched up. As it turns out, Ramon Montoya wasn't Pusateri's only alternate identity. He was booked under the name Luis Archuleta. This guy, Pusateri, had at least two different aliases. There was Luis Archuleta, which if you look in Denver's prison system right now or in Colorado's prison system, that's the name the prison system is currently using right now because he actually has been transferred here to Colorado right now. I just checked. Then he also went by uh, uh, Roman Ramon Montoya. Um, So this guy had the ability to escape himself in a way, his real identity. He had the ability to escape himself and live under uh, this alias or aliases for, you know, 40 plus years. As Hohola points out, Archuleta and Montoya are both fairly common names in northern New Mexico. I mean, he picked the right names to blend in, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, when when he did what he when I don't know how he was able to you know, convince people for so long. But, you know, this happened in the early 1970s. Things were not digitized back then like they are now. It was very easy back then. It was much easier back then to create a false persona on paper and, you know, uh, forge paperwork and, you know, probably get a driver's license from the DMV back then, a birth certificate, social security cards and all of that stuff. I mean, that stuff was, you know, it was all paper-based, uh, back then, I'm not sure if that's what he did, but I understand, you know, he did have he did have documents on him when he was arrested, um, uh, or he had paperwork identifying himself as uh, Louis Archuleta when he was uh, arrested. Even most of the people closest to Pusateri say they didn't know about his past life, his real identity. This guy lived a totally different life, and from what I understand, his his family didn't know. Uh, not even his children. His children didn't even know that he had this whole different uh, life uh, before, 19, before the 1970s. Um, and so I was reading the Albuquerque Journal that he eventually confessed to his son that his name was Pusateri and that he uh, had ties to the uh, Italian mafia back then. According to Cinquanta, even Pusateri's current wife didn't know he was a fugitive. Supposedly his wife had no clue that he was an escapee, an ex-con, that he shot a policeman. She yeah. was totally surprised. As for who provided Cinquanta with the information that led to Pusateri's arrest, we still don't know. And you got to wonder who that is. Um, you know, I was reading in the, in the coverage about this in New Mexico that Pusateri had an ex-wife that has a lot of animosity towards him. Uh, it may have been her. Uh, and he's, he even has uh, children. Uh, from his time, you know, being on the lam. And, uh, I mean, who knows who it is? Uh, You know, as an investigative reporter, 
you know, when I make phone calls uh, to people and I'm trying to get information, every now and then, you know, two or three years later, I'll get phone calls from people I've contacted. I'm looking into a story and they'll say, okay, I'll give you information. And I think a lot of times people have an ax to grind. People have, uh, you know, these, these feelings of animosity for someone and, you know, they'll just, you know, they'll turn against their friends or their family. And this may uh, be the case here. Pusateri, or Archuleta, as he's now being referred to by law enforcement, had already been convicted and sentenced for shooting Cinquanta back in the 70s. According to an August FBI news release, he now faces a new charge of unlawful flight to avoid prosecution or confinement. What I'm curious about is how the justice system today is going to view this case. Uh, this happened This happened in the early 70s, and I think a defense attorney, whoever it is, is likely going to argue that Pusateri slash Archuleta lived a relatively peaceful, non-violent life in New Mexico for 40 years. At least that's, you know, that's reflected in the court record. I mean, he has a, you know, a drunk driving case, but there's no assaults uh, that I could see. There's no violent crimes on his record. And I think a defense attorney could potentially successfully argue that the court should give mercy to Archuleta since this happened so long ago. And now that he's an older guy, I mean, he's an older guy. Is this, is this a worthwhile application of justice? For now, as he waits to see how this plays out in court, Daryl Cinquanta is just happy he finally found the man who shot him. Oh, I felt great. You know, uh, I don't know if you know the cop's mentality, but we have a thing called bragging rights. And it really did give me bragging rights to chase somebody that long. If you ask Cinquanta for all its twists and turns, this story boils down to something pretty simple and straightforward. You know, it, it comes back to cops and robbers and, uh, you know, the chase. Others may not agree that it's quite so straightforward. You've got cops and robbers here. You've got a bad guy and a cop. Uh, in a classic chase, but there is so much more to this story. Complicating things is Cinquanta's own legacy as a police officer, which is steeped in controversy. When I did my initial story on Nine News here in Denver, I received some interesting uh, messages from people uh, who were upset that we were giving Cinquanta airtime. Jeremy Hihola has only been working in Denver for about nine years, but he's heard from longtime community members who say Cinquanta has a checkered past. I was told by uh, a, a few people that Cinquanta had a reputation when he was a cop here in the 70s and 80s here in, in, in Denver of being uh, an abusive officer, uh, someone who was, who was known to abuse his authority, someone who would bully and use his badge to bully people. And uh, that's well documented in the... And, you know, in, in newspapers here in Denver. And from what I understand, at some point, Cinquanta ended up getting charged uh, by the criminal justice system itself. The Denver Post has reported that in 1989, Cinquanta was charged with 17 counts for allegedly setting up crimes to entrap suspects. Cinquanta has denied the accusations, but pleaded guilty to two counts of first-degree misconduct. He retired the following year. You have this well-known, and, and I think it's fair to call him a notorious police officer because he had a reputation back then. He was His name was often in the news uh, back then. And then you have this fugitive who is a, you know, a criminal uh, himself, too. 
So it's like, you, you know, Cinquanta likes to call this a case of cops and robbers. Um, but in, in reality, it's, it's, it's two men. I mean, if you strip them of their titles, it, it's two men who had a very violent conflict in the beginning of the 1970s. And now they may have another meeting soon if, if they end up meeting each other again in some sort of courtroom or, you know, somewhere. Cinquanta told Hohola that he looks forward to that meeting. I mean, I, I'm, I'm reveling in the fact that I got him. And um, they're going to extradite him back, and I'm going to try to see him. I would love to sit down and talk to him. So he may or may not talk to me. Who knows? What do you plan to say? Hey, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I'll have to commend him for staying underground for 46 years. <laughs> you know, I mean, really, that's yeah. a feat. Hey, True Crime Chronicles listeners, I'm Spencer Bruding. I'm here with Will Johnson and Reed Redman. Reed, you did a lot of the research for this podcast, as you did last week as well. And uh, one of the things that immediately jumps out at me is the fact that, you know, this went on for 50 years and Pusateri was able to create two completely separate identities. I mean, he had the paperwork, he had children that his children didn't even know who his original what his original identity was and the fact that he was able to change from an Italian guy into someone with uh, two different Hispanic names. I mean, it it is incredible uh, what he was able to do. Yeah, it's very rare that you have a case where a suspect is arrested after being on the run for 50 years. Uh, One of the first things that I did when I started looking into this case was just try to sketch out a timeline of, you know, what happened, when it happened. And I have those notes in front of me and it goes, you know, Pusateri escapes prison, he shoots Cinquanta, he flees to Mexico, he's arrested, he's extradited. There's this 40-year manhunt, Cinquanta retires, Pusateri goes by Luis Argeleta at some point, he starts going by Ramon Montoya, and then he's finally arrested. It's it's a lot. <laughs> the other thing too, Reed, is that, you know, he even got picked up for DUI in 2011. And even then, you know, his identity, his original identity was not found out. I so badly want to know what was going through his mind during that arrest. And maybe that's something that we'll get to find out because he had to, at some point, think, okay, this is it. I'm about to be found out. I'm going to go to prison for a long time. And then the police don't realize that this is somebody who, you know, had been wanted for decades. Right. It's, it's unbelievable. And and that, that could happen even just less than 10 years ago. Uh, it's incredible, really wild. And Reed, I know in doing the research for this one, you talked to Jeremy Hohola, who did the interview and uh, talked to the officer in this situation. And I know you discussed, like, this sounds like a movie almost, the way that it kind of goes on for decades. And it's the story of, you know, one man's quest to find the guy who shot him. Oh, yeah. I would love to see this movie. Um, I'm not even sure who the protagonist would be for as interesting of a story as Sinquana has to tell. I'm sure Pusateri has some pretty interesting stories himself. I would watch a movie about him evading the law for 50 years. Come on, Reed. He's the bad guy. But but we do have that odd wrinkle at the end where the officer in the, in question here in this, in this story uh, has faced charges uh, over the years as well. Yeah, and, and I'll point out that the charges against Cinquanta that were filed in 1989 and then the two counts of misconduct that he ultimately pleaded guilty to, they're not directly related to the Pusateri case. Um, But I still think they're important to this story in that, you know, as we're discussing, if this were a movie, the trope that we're maybe used to seeing is of an officer who cares so much about justice under the law 
that they just refuse to give up a case until they get their guy. Whereas in this real-life story, you have people in Denver who suggest that this is an officer who didn't show respect for the law during his career to the extent that he did plead guilty to two counts of misconduct. And just to be clear, I know we talk about it in the story, but he pleads and then retired, right? Correct. Yeah, he, he pleads guilty to two counts of misconduct in 1989, and then in 1990 he retires and, and goes on to become a private investigator. And on the flip side of this, if we're going to muddy the waters even more, I thought it was a really interesting point of view that, you know, the idea that a modern-day defense attorney could possibly argue that Pusateri, or now Luis Archuleta, because he was able to live a life of relative peace and, and harmony after escaping from prison, that a modern defense attorney could actually possibly get him off saying, if you look at the last 40 years, almost 50 years, he has lived peacefully. I mean, it's very murky, you know, <laughs> uh, under the eyes of the law. And Jeremy actually mentions that as well, Reed. He talks about how he's interested to see how this is going to play out in a court of law. Yeah, he, he does. And the point that he makes when he sort of steps into the shoes of a defense attorney is that maybe the mere fact of being on the run reformed this guy better than his original sentence might have in that in the early 70s, he was committing violent crimes one after the other. And then when he's on the run, he goes 50 years without an arrest for a violent crime. There is that one arrest in 2011 for a DUI, uh, but but that's it. But a lot of violence occurred for that to happen because he did shoot a law enforcement officer and then he somehow was able to get a gun in prison to actually force his way out through the threat of violence to escape prison. So it it is an interesting question of, yes, he spent, you know, almost 50 years living a life of peace, but there was a lot of violence and threat of violence in order to live that life of peace. And it'll be interesting to see what uh, the legal system you know, comes up with for this case. Yeah, you're right, Spencer. Like when we talk about it sounding like a movie, we don't want to romanticize what happened here or the crimes involved. Right. Yeah, yeah. We've been sort of playing the role of a defense attorney because it's fun and it's interesting in this case. Uh, but that's not to say that there's there's no case that a prosecutor can make against him with regard to the escape. All right. Uh, Reed, thanks for your help on the episode this week. Spencer, where can people go to learn more about us? Yeah, if you uh, if you like this episode, if you like True Crime Chronicles or any Vault Studios productions, you can find us online at Inside the Crime Vault on Facebook. Uh, we have uh, almost 5,000 members that discuss true crime and these podcasts. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson, along with Reed Redman and Spencer Brudig. We'll be back next week with a new case and a new story.